Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. So, we just finished Whose Body? Finally, after like three months. That was a great book. I enjoyed it a lot. But y'all know, if you've listened to this for any amount of time, that I appreciate some good old Sherlock Holmes. So you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna read some Sherlock Holmes. I've listened to a bunch of his collections of short stories, but I found a collection that I hadn't read from, and it's called The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. And today, I chose a story from that that I'm going to read with you guys today. So, let's get started. The Adventure of the Lion's Mane by Arthur Conan Doyle. It is a most singular thing that a problem which was certainly as obtruse and unusual as any which I have faced in my long professional career should have come to me after my retirement and be brought, as it were, to my very door. It occurred after my withdrawal to my little Sussex home, when I had given myself up entirely to that soothing life of nature for which I had so often yearned during the long years spent amid the gloom of London. At this period of my life, the good Watson had passed almost beyond my ken. Hold up, this is from Sherlock's point of view? Since when does that happen? So, I don't think they usually start from Sherlock's point of view, because, like, the whole shtick is that Watson is always writing up their experiences, but I'm enjoying this. Do go on. An occasional weekend visit was the most that I ever saw of him. Thus, I must act as my own chronicler. Eh, he is writing it, haha. <laughs> Sherlock doesn't exactly enjoy, um, how Watson writes up his stories and how he dramatizes them. Uh, so maybe this story will be much more down-to-earth and much more direct than what Watson writes. Who knows? We'll see. Ah, had he but been with me, how much he might have made of so wonderful a happening, and of my eventual triumph against every difficulty. As it is, however, I must needs tell my tale in my own plain way, showing by my words each step upon the difficult road which lay before me, as I searched for the mystery of the lion's mane. My villa is situated upon the southern slope of the Downs, commanding a great view of the channel. At this point, the coastline is entirely of chalk cliffs, which can only be descended by a single, long, torturous path, which is steep and slippery. At the bottom of the path lie a hundred yards of pebbles and shingle, even when the tide is at full. Here and there, however, there are curves and hollows which make splendid swimming pools, filled afresh with each flow. This admirable beach extends for some miles in each direction, save only at one point where the little cove and village of Fullworth break the line. My house is lonely. I, my old housekeeper, and my bees have the estate all to ourselves. I forgot that Sherlock Holmes held bees. Nice. Half a mile off, however, is Harold Stackhurst's well-known coaching establishment, the Gables, Quite a large place, which contains some score of young fellows preparing for various professions, with a staff of several masters. Stackhurst himself was a well-known rowing blue in his day, and an excellent all-around scholar. He and I were always friendly from the day I came to the coast, and he was the one man on such terms with me that we could drop in on each other in the evenings without an invitation. Towards the end of July, 1907, there was a severe gale, the wind blowing up channel, heaping the seas to the base of the cliffs and leaving a lagoon at the turn of the tide. On the morning of which I speak, the wind had abated and all nature was newly washed and fresh. It was impossible to work upon so delightful a day, and I strolled out before breakfast to enjoy the exquisite air. I walked upon the cliff path which led to the steep descent to the beach. As I walked, I heard a shout behind me, and there was Harold Stackhurst, waving his hand in cheery greeting. 
What a morning tea, Mr. Holmes. I thought I should see you out. Going for a swim, I see. That's your old tricks again, he laughed, patting his bulging pocket. Yes, McPherson started early, and I expect I may find him there. Fitzroy McPherson was the science master, a fine, upstanding young fellow whose life had been crippled by heart trouble following rheumatic fever. He was a natural athlete, however, and excelled in every game which did not throw too great a strain on him. Summer and winter, he went for his swim, and as I am a swimmer myself, I have often joined him. At this moment, we saw the man himself. His head showed above the edge of the cliff where the path ends. Then, his whole figure appeared at the top, staggering like a drunken man. The next instant, he threw up his hands and, with a terrible cry, fell upon his face. So that's McPherson, who is the swimmer guy. Stackhurst and I rushed forward, it may have been 50 yards, and turned him on his back. He was obviously dying. Those glazed, sunken eyes and dreadful, livid cheeks could mean nothing else. One glimmer of life came to his face for an instant, and he uttered two or three words with an eager air of warning. They were slurred and indistinct, but to my ear the last of them, which burst in a shriek from his lips, were the lion's mane. It was utterly irrelevant and unintelligible, and yet I could twist the sound into nothing else. Then he half raised himself from the ground, threw his arms into the air, and fell forward on his side. He was dead. So he just like, fell to the ground, whispered, Lion's mane! And then stood up again, and then died. Nice. <laughs> oh, he half raised himself from the ground, so he like, sat up, and then fell back because he was dead. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> My companion was paralyzed by the sudden horror of it, but I, as may well be imagined, had every sense on the alert. And I had need, for it was speedily evident that we were in the presence of an extraordinary case. The man was dressed only in his Burberry overcoat, his trousers, and an unlaced pair of canvas shoes. As he fell over, his Burberry, which had been simply thrown round his shoulders, slipped off, exposing his trunk. We stared at it in amazement. His back was covered with dark red lines as though he had been terribly flogged by a thin wire scourge. The instrument with which this punishment had been inflicted was clearly flexible. The long, angry wheels curved round his shoulders and ribs. There was blood dripping down his chin, for he had bitten through his lower lip in the paroxysm of his agony. His drawn and distorted face told how terrible that agony had been. He's just getting tortured? But this is like the chill UK coast. Come on. We're supposed to be calm here. This is like a retirement home. It is not actually a retirement home, but no dying. <laughs> I was kneeling and Stackhurst standing by the body when a shadow fell across us, and we found that Ian Murdoch was by our side. Murdoch was the mathematical coach at the establishment, a tall, dark, thin man so taciturn and aloof that none can be said to have been his friend. Sounds like a nice guy. <laughs> he seemed to live in some high, abstract region of surds and conic sections with little to connect him with ordinary life. He was looked upon as an oddity by the students, and would have been their butt, but there was some strange outlandish blood in the man, which showed itself not only in his coal-black eyes and swarthy face, but also in occasional outbreaks of temper, which could only be described as ferocious. Interesting. Sounds like the best neighbor to have, honestly. Like, I would choose no other guy to live right next door. <laughs> Jeez. 
On one occasion, being plagued by a little dog belonging to McPherson, or McPherson, 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 <laughs> he had caught the creature up and hurled it through the plate glass window, an action for which Stackhurst would certainly have given him his dismissal had he not been a very valuable teacher. Such was the strange, complex man who now appeared beside us. He seemed to be honestly shocked at the sight before him, though the incident of the dog may show that there was no great sympathy between the dead man and himself. Poor fellow, poor fellow, what can I do? How can I help? Were you with him? Can you tell us what has happened? No, no, I was late this morning. I was not on the beach at all. I have come straight from the gables. What can I do? You can hurry to the police station at Fulworth. Report the matter at once. Without a word, he made off at top speed, and I proceeded to take the matter in hand, while Stikers, dazed at this tragedy, remained by the body. My first task, naturally, was to note who was on the beach. From the top of the path, I could see the whole sweep of it, and it was absolutely deserted, save that two or three dark figures could be seen far away, moving towards the village of Fulworth. Wow, that's not suspicious. It's like, hmm, we're looking for who's on the beach? Well, I see some two dark figures down there, huh? There was clay or soft marl mixed with the chalk, and every here and there I saw the same footstep, both ascending and descending. No one else had gone down to the beach by this track that morning. At one place, I observed the print of an open hand with the fingers toward the incline. This could only mean that poor McPherson had fallen as he ascended. There were rounded depressions too, which suggested that he had come down upon his knees more than once. At the bottom of the path was the considerable lagoon left by the retreating tide. At the sight of it, McPherson had undressed, for there lay his towel on a rock. It was folded and dry, so that it would seem that, after all, he had never entered the water. Once or twice, as I hunted round amid the hard shingle, I came on little patches of sand, where the print of his canvas shoe, and also of his naked foot, could be seen. The latter fact proved that he had made all ready to bathe, though the towel indicated that he had not actually done so. And here was the problem clearly defined, as strange a one as had ever confronted me. The man had not been on the beach more than a quarter of an hour at the most. Stackhurst had followed him from the gables, so there could be no doubt about that. He had gone to bathe and stripped, as the naked footsteps showed. Then he had suddenly huddled on his clothes again, they were all disheveled and unfastened, and he had returned without bathing, or at any rate, without drying himself. And the reason for his change of purpose had been that he had been scourged in some savage, inhuman fashion, tortured until he bit his lip through in his agony, and was left with only strength to crawl away and to die. Who had done this barbarous deed? Nothing like good old torture to start your day, right? There were, it is true, small grottoes and caves in the base of the cliffs, but the low sun shone directly into them, and there was no place for concealment. Then again, there were those distant figures on the beach. They seemed too far away to have been connected with the crime, and the broad lagoon in which McPherson had intended to bathe lay between him and them, lapping up to the rocks. On the sea, two or three fishing boats were at no great distance. Their occupants might be examined at our leisure. There were several roads for inquiry, but none which led to any very obvious goal. This is very plainly written. This is definitely Sherlock Holmes. I appreciate it, it's great. When I at last returned to the body, I found that a little group of wandering folk had gathered round it. 
Sackhurst was, of course, still there, and Ian Murdoch had just arrived with Anderson, the village constable. A big, ginger-mustached man of the slow, solid Sussex breed. A breed which covers much good sense under a heavy, silent exterior. Sounds a whole lot like not Sug. <laughs> he listened to everything, took note of all we said, and finally drew me aside. I'll be glad of your advice, Mr. Holmes. This is a big thing for me to handle, and I'll hear it from Louis if I go wrong. I advised him to send for his immediate superior and for a doctor, also to allow nothing to be moved, and as few fresh footmarks as possible to be made, until they came. In the meantime, I searched the dead man's pockets. There were his handkerchief, a large knife, and a small folding card case. Uh, do people regularly carry around large knives? Like, it's not even like a small pocket knife, it's like a large knife. Probably a large pocket knife, considering that was in his pocket and he wasn't stabbed. But, you know, still. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, a cleaver in this guy's jacket pocket. <laughs> and a small folding card case. From this projected a slip of paper, which I unfolded and handed to the constable. There was written on it, in a small, scrawling, feminine hand, I will be there, you may be sure. Maudie. It read like a love affair, an assignation, though when and where were a blank. The constable replaced it in the card case and returned it with the other things to the pockets of the Burberry. Which is the coat that he wore, it's probably a brand or something. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just a type of coat, like the design. Then, as nothing more suggested itself, I walked back to my house for breakfast, having first arranged that the base of the cliffs should be thoroughly searched. Sackhurst was round in an hour or two to tell me that the body had been removed to the gables where the inquest would be held. Ooh, the inquest. <laughs> he brought with him some serious and definite news. As I expected, nothing had been found in the caves below the cliffs, but he had examined the papers in McPherson's desk, and there were several which showed an intimate correspondence with a certain Miss Maud Bellamy of Fulworth. Sounds like Maudie. <laughs> M-A-U-D-I-E, that was on the note. We had then established the identity of the writer of the note. The police have the letters, he explained. I could not bring them. But there is no doubt that it was a serious love affair. I see no reason, however, to connect it with that horrible happening, save indeed that the lady had made an appointment with him. But hardly at a bathing pool, which all of you were in the habit of using, I remarked. It is mere chance, said he, that several of the students were not with McPherson. Was it mere chance? Stackhurst knit his brows and thought. Ian Murdoch held them back, said he. He would insist upon some algebraic demonstration before breakfast. Poor chap, he is dreadfully cut up about it all. And yet I gather they were not friends? At one time they were not, but for a year or more, Murdoch has been as near to McPherson as he ever could be to anyone. He is not of a very sympathetic disposition by nature. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like it. So I understand. I seem to remember you're telling me once about a quarrel over the ill usage of a dog. <laughs> the ill usage of a dog? Yeah, I think you're using a dog pretty ill if you're chucking it through a window. <laughs> that blew over all right. But left some vindictive feeling, perhaps? No, no, I'm sure they are real friends. Well then, you must explore the matter of the girl. Do you know her? Everyone knows her. She is the beauty of the neighborhood. A real beauty, Holmes, who would draw attention everywhere. I knew that McPherson was attracted by her, but I had no notion that it had gone so far as these letters would seem to indicate. But who is she? She's the daughter of old Tom Bellamy, who owns all the boats and bathing cots at Fulworth. 
He was a fisherman to start with, but is now a man of some substance. He and his son, William, run the business. Shall we walk into Fulworth and see them? On what pretext? Oh, we can easily find a pretext. After all, this poor man did not ill-use himself in this outrageous way. Some human hand was on the handle of that scourge, if indeed it was a scourge which inflicted the injuries. His circle of acquaintances in this lonely place was surely limited. Let us follow it up in every direction, and we can hardly fail to come upon the motive, which in turn should lead us to the criminal. It would have been a pleasant walk across the time-scented downs, had our mind not been poisoned by the tragedy we had witnessed. The village of Fulworth lies in a hollow curving in a semicircle around the bay. Behind the old-fashioned hamlet, several modern houses have been built upon the rising ground. It was to one of these that Stackhurst guided me. That's the haven, as Bellamy called it. The one with the corner tower and the slate roof. Not bad for a man who started with nothing but- uh, By Jove, look at that! The garden gate of the haven had opened, and a man had emerged. There was no mistaking that tall, angular, straggling figure. It was Ian Murdoch, the mathematician. A moment later, we confronted him upon the road. Hello, said Stackhurst. The man nodded and gave us a sideways glance from his curious dark eyes, and would have passed us, but his principal pulled him up. What are you doing here? he asked. Murdoch's face flushed with anger. I'm your subordinate, sir, under your roof. I'm not aware that I owe you any account of my private actions. Stackhurst's nerves were near the surface after all he had endured. Otherwise, perhaps, he would have waited. Now, he lost his temper completely. In the circumstances, your answer is pure impertinence, Mr. Murdoch. Your own question might perhaps come under the same heading. This is not the first time that I have had to overlook your insubordinate ways. It will certainly be the last. You will kindly make fresh arrangements for your future as speedily as you can. I had intended to do so. I have lost today the only person who made the gables habitable. He strode off upon his way, while Stackhurst, with angry eyes, stood glaring after him. Is he not an impossible, intolerable man, he cried? The one thing that impressed itself forcibly upon my mind was that Mr. Ian Murdoch was taking the first chance to open a path of escape from the scene of the crime. Suspicion, vague and nebulous, was now beginning to take outline in my mind. Perhaps the visit to the Bellamy's might throw some further light upon the matter. Stackhurst pulled himself together, and we went forward to the house. Mr. Bellamy proved to be a middle-aged man with a flaming red beard. He seemed to be in a very angry mood, and his face was soon as florid as his hair. No, sir, I do not desire any particulars. My son here, indicating a powerful young man with a heavy, sullen face in the corner of the sitting room, is of one mind with me that Mr. McPherson's intentions to Maud were insulting. Yes, sir, the word marriage was never mentioned, and yet there were letters and meetings and a great deal more of which neither of us could approve. She has no mother, and we are her only guardians. We are determined- But the words were taken from his mouth by the appearance of the lady herself. There was no gainsaying that she would have graced any assembly in the world. Who could have imagined that so rare a flower would grow from such a root and in such an atmosphere? Women have seldom been an attraction to me, for my brain has always governed my heart. But I could not look upon her perfect, clear-cut face, with all the soft freshness of the downloads in her delicate coloring, without realizing that no young man would cross her path unscathed. <laughs> Jeez. Such was the girl who had pushed open the door and stood now, wide-eyed and intense, in front of Harold Stackhurst. 
I know already that Fitzroy's dead, she said. Do not be afraid to tell me the particulars. This other gentleman of yours let us know the news, explained the father. There is no reason why my sister should be brought into the matter, growled the younger man. The sister turned a sharp, fierce look upon him. This is my business, William. Kindly leave me to manage it in my own way. By all accounts, there has been a crime committed. If I can help to show who did it, it is the least I can do for him who is gone. Oh, she's, uh, sassy. I like it. <laughs> she listened to a short account from my companion with a composed concentration, which showed me that she possessed strong character as well as great beauty. Maud Bellamy will always remain in my memory as a most complete and remarkable woman. It seems that she already knew me by sight, for she turned to me at the end. Bring them to justice, Mr. Holmes. You have my sympathy and my help, whoever they may be. It seemed to me that she glanced defiantly at her father and brother as she spoke. Thank you, said I. I value a woman's instinct in such matters. You use the word they. You think that more than one was concerned? I knew Mr. McPherson well enough to be aware that he was a brave and strong man. No single person could ever have inflicted such an outrage upon him. Might I have one word with you alone? I tell you, Maud, not to mix yourself up in the matter, cried her father angrily. She looked at me helplessly. What can I do? The whole world will know the facts presently, so there can be no harm if I discuss them here, said I. I should have preferred privacy, but if your father will not allow it, he must share the deliberations. Then I spoke of the note which had been found in the dead man's pocket. It is sure to be produced at the inquest. May I ask you to throw any light upon it that you can? I see no reason for mystery, she answered. We were engaged to be married, and we only kept it secret because Fitzroy's uncle, who was very old and said to be dying, might have disinherited him if he had married against his witch. There was no other reason. You could have told us, growled Mr. Bellamy. So I would, father, if you had ever shown sympathy. I object to my girl picking up with men outside her own station. It was your prejudice against him which prevented us from telling you. As to this appointment... She fumbled in her dress and produced a crumpled note. It was an answer to this. Dearest, ran the message, the old place on the beach just after sunset on Tuesday. It is the only time I can get away. F.M. Tuesday was today, and I had meant to meet him tonight. I turned over the paper. This never came by post. How did you get it? I would rather not answer that question. It has really nothing to do with the matter which you are investigating. But anything which bears upon that, I will most freely answer. So, this is going to be a redonkulously short episode, but I'm good with that because this is a little long to do one-parter, but a little too short to be a two-parter, so... Yeah, I don't want to do a long episode again like last week, so, yeah. So that was cool. <laughs> we learned about some guy, Fitzroy McPherson, who was beaten on a beach. And, of course, Sherlock Holmes was on the scene, because nothing boring happens to Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And, um, apparently Fitzroy McPherson had a very sassy girlfriend. <laughs> um, Maud Bellamy is uh, his girlfriend. Girlfriend, they were, they were engaged, so fiancé, I guess. And, yeah, her father disapproved, which is honestly no surprise. Because, <laughs> I don't know, she's high class, I suppose. And, yeah, so right now we're just trying to figure out who beat this guy to death and why. The first immediate suspect that I had was obviously Ian Murdoch, who is the teacher at the Gables. 
and who was described to be really violent and angry, kind of stuff like that, you know? But it was later revealed, like five minutes later, I mean, it's not very long, but it was it was revealed that um, Fitzroy McPherson and Ian Murdoch were like the closest that Ian Murdoch could have, like the closest friend. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that kind of does take away some suspicion from him because he's genuinely sad that his friend is gone, or at least, you know, it seems that way for now. Um, so yeah, next week we will finish up the story because, you know, it's short. <laughs> After that, um, I don't know what I'll do. I do know that two Agatha Christie books, um, Murder on the Links and The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, recently came into the public domain, just like a couple years ago. Um, so I'll likely do those eventually, although for now I think I'm gonna stick with short stories for a bit because we just finished a novel, you know, so. Yeah. I hope you guys have an awesome day, and... Yeah, if you ever feel like giving me book recommendations, either for the podcast or just for me, then you can send them to classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to rate and review on whatever podcast app you're using, that would be great. So I can get, you know, more listeners, more, more people to hear these cool stories that not many people talk about nowadays. Yeah, I always have two links in the description. One for becoming my patron, one for just donating to me one time. Again, thanks guys for listening, and I will see you guys next Monday. Bye.